Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. To thunderous applause. It's a chef's kiss line. Carl appreciates a good woman. Yay, mullet guy? Bye-bye, shoulder pads. Hello, grunge. Back to you, Jim. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 12, The Strike. Hi, I'm Lauren. And this is Jesse. And welcome to another episode directed by Barnett Kelman. Welcome. You know what I love about this episode? Looking yes. at the details. Uh-huh. It feels very true classic Murphy in that it is directed by Barnett and written by Stephen Peterman and Gary Donzig. Yes. It just feels truly Murphy. And it's funny because I enjoyed this episode a lot more than I remember enjoying it originally. I laughed so hard at this episode. Yeah. You don't know what section, but I... Like, I always laugh at these episodes. Yeah, I was same. so surprised at how much I laughed at this episode. It got me. It got me good, y'all. It did. And it's not one that I ever would have on my favorite. And I know a lot of people on the show have said that it's one of their favorites. Barnett, particularly. It, I completely a, forgot it. Yeah, I did. I, I completely forgot it. I remember, actually, to be honest, I was like, oh, the strike episode. Okay, well. But I wonder if because it's a lot of adult issues that maybe as a kid, you kind of yeah, just were like, eh. It just doesn't. And truly, I, I think also, one, being an adult, two, being in, having been in film and on film sets, mm-hmm. the uh, the on-set shenanigans that occur just hit me so much more from a place of, like, it's too real and so slapstick all this. Like, it just, it truly is, like, adult arts and entertainment worker Jesse really appreciated this episode. And also, as much of it is an ensemble episode, it's mm-hmm. not our usual ensemble. You know, yes. uh, it's more Murphy and these union guys. And Carl. And, and Carl. Who we, and I love Carl. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I love Carl. But it's not our usual sort of gang, even though everyone, no. I think, has a really important part to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I came out going, I really like this episode. I didn't think I was going to like it going in from my memory, unfortunately. Well, and something we've talked about, which is ties into we there is another episode about a strike. Yeah, it's called the strike two, I think. <laughs> strike. Oh, strike two. Strike two. That's it. Which is, I think, another reason why maybe I didn't remember this one as much because I think my brain combined them as a child, which probably made it confusing and hard for me to remember it. Yeah, I could see that. So strike two is part of season three. Mm-hmm. So this episode um, is the end of 1989. So we're getting into the official 90s soon, which is going to be exciting, I think. Because, again, uh, people refer to Murphy Brown as an 80s show because if you look at the dates, it started in 88. But I think mm-hmm. of it as a 90s show, and it's so much part of mm-hmm. 90s culture for me. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes it's a little strange to me, and I, I'll get a little upset. Like, no, it's not. It's not an 80s show. It's not. <laughs> little, little nerd brain in me. Um, so this aired December 11th, 1989. Bye-bye, shoulder pads. Hello, grunge. (laughs) Yes. I found some really cool quotes from an article around this time from Diane N. from Candace. And something that particularly Diane said was that the show to me now has more edges. And as I've grown older, I've grown more edges. Oh, that's so good. Isn't that great? Mm, Yes, ma'am. I mean, I think this is why as a kid, honestly, like stories about older people from me at the time, I should say, were more compelling to me. I was the only kid my age that didn't watch uh, 902.0. I had no interest in watching my so-called life. I didn't find teenagers interesting to me. I found mm-hmm. people who were older than me because they had more of a story to tell and, and they had more edges, exactly. And I kind of just I love that quote. Well, and also I think that it has played into reasons that I'm not afraid to age. Yeah, is, good one. You know, and I think similar to like the Murder, She Wrote thing that we've talked about, which is that I perhaps it's because I was raised by an older family, but also I was just raised by people who watch things where an older generation was not seen as less than or weaker. Mm-hmm. They were seen as having agency and empowerment in their own lives and continue yeah. on past, you know, being like the babe in a in a law show. You know, like there is something about. Um, yeah, I'm totally just referencing First Wives Club again, but there <laughs> it gave me a lot of perspective as a kid that I don't think I realized until I have been aging yeah. Realizing that I'm not afraid of it. I'm not somebody who's trying to, I, I don't think my life ends at 50. I've never yeah. thought that. And I've always appreciated the fact that the older I get, the more edges I acquire. And that's always been interesting to me. And I think that's because of writers like Diane. Yeah. I mean, I remember in high school, uh, somehow it came up a bunch of kids in class, you know, what age do you consider old? 
Mm-hmm. And someone said, 26. Plus. We were 17 at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was like, I don't know, 60? <laughs> like, which still today doesn't even feel that old. I mean, exactly. I'm like, yeah. get it, girl. 60 is the new 40, really. Or 70 is the new 40. I mean, but also I found um, another quote in this article from Candace about working with Barnett, which I thought was really oh. interesting. I needed virtually everything I could get from a director. All I had was the instinct that I thought I could do comedy. I needed someone who could help me to detail a performance. Barnett is remarkable. I don't know how he knows these things that it would be funnier if I pick up the cup of coffee on the second syllable. His sense of comedy is so sure. Yeah, it's a gift. And we even noticed that talking to him, like just the yeah. way he speaks. Like there, timing is not something that you can learn. Some people just have it. And then there is a proficiency that someone can learn from example. Yeah. But just that natural inherent timing to just know that that's the funnier thing. Yeah. It's, it's a gift. And it can't be taught but I think Mm -hmm. what Candace is saying and that she does have a sense of comedy Mm -hmm. and so when you have a director who can point things out and also make you feel confident about your own choices Mm -hmm. I, I always feel that the best director is someone who not only makes you feel confident about your choices like I just said but also makes you think that certain things that they want you to do is your idea Mm hmm well and I think that's what she doesn't realize that she said at that point was that mm-hmm. she had the instinct already. Absolutely. Which is that timing. What you need is someone who's been using and honing that instinct for so long that they're able to articulate what that, Im- like I think about the directors that I work with who are so talented and they never say, oh, I need you to do this and I need you to do this. They say, I saw your impulse to move at this moment. They see the impulses in you. They see that it's there. They just recognize it in you when you're not sure what your instinct is telling you to do. Yeah, and someone like Candace who has a good, good well a great comedic instinct mm-hmm. when someone can say oh it's funnier if you pick up the cup here she's going to remember that because she's going to mm-hmm. understand why it's funny she may not and have thought of it at right first instinctually in her body. yeah and she'll keep doing it mm-hmm. i mean you see her getting better and better yeah i mean yeah. i think about there's also something about comedic timing that's incredibly intimidating the mm. concept of somebody who has comedic comedic timing like we talk about it when we talk about the giants of comedy and it seems like something that's so unattainable and it scares a lot of people away from comedy And that's why you need someone who's able to encourage you to keep going. I think about being in undergrad and a teacher telling me my freshman year that I have no comedic timing. And therefore, I was so scared of and avoiding and and I just avoided all comedy for years, which is what's so funny is that now I work almost exclusively in comedy. (laughs) Yes, that's so shocking to me that someone said that to you. But also Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Mrs. Mm -hmm. Maisel, was also told that she was not funny. Yeah. So, you know, and the what? thing was, and I, and I think what it came from, and now that I'm able to look back at teachers and authority figures as people with their own quirks and not necessarily <laughs> perfect communicators, yes. was that this person was noticing that I was trying to be funny oh, rather different. than just being myself, which is a weird person who happens to have comedic timing. I just didn't, I thought it was something I had to try really hard at, I bet, at like 18. And similar to Rachel Brosnahan, she is just a funny human that when she, as we say in, in classical work, when you let the text do the work and just put yourself on top of it, it's funny. Um, so the song is If You Can Want by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Oh, Smokey. It's a 1968 single. It's on the Tamla label. And I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about Smokey Robinson. Obviously, I can't talk about everything here. There's a bit of info. There's a lot. But get this, Jesse. Mm. The great Smokey Robinson has been credited with writing at least 4,000 songs. Jeez. Yes. Bob Dylan called him America's greatest living poet. Oh, wow. From Dylan? I know, right? My God. That's like Renee Fleming being like, that girl is one of the best sopranos we've ever had in, in the world. <laughs> He claims that he had been writing songs since he was four or five years old. Uh, his birth name was uh, William Robinson Jr. And he was born in 1940. And he grew up in Detroit. He actually grew up down the block from Aretha Franklin. So he's known her since he was, well, she was, since she was five. Wow, there's like magic in that water. Oh, it, it gets even better. Also in the Detroit area were Diana Ross, Mary Wells, Jackie Wilson, and Martha Reeves. Uh, he said that um, there were so many talented people in the area where he grew up that they used to have group battles on the street corners. <laughs> like, I can't even imagine how. Right. I wonder if you were from that area and you just thought everyone was like that. Like, this is just everyone. Like, Yeah, sure. Everyone just is talented. So here's something I wanted to ask you, Jesse, because 
this is something that I was surprised about that I thought I knew and I didn't. And we've talked about this on the show, things that you grew up with, things that you're told and you just think that it's it's the truth and it ends up not being. Do you mm-hmm. know, have you ever heard a story as to how he got the name Smokey? Oh, I've definitely heard a, a name. I don't think I could even tell you. I, I definitely have read something or heard some anecdote about where Smokey came from, but I don't think I You don't remember. remember. Okay, that's okay. I was just curious because mm-hmm. I had heard and this is wrong, but I had heard that it was because of these sort of blue-green smoky eyes that he has. That sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Also, apparently, which is not true because of the light color of his skin. Absolutely Mm. not true. Yeah. I had not heard that one. So when I found out the real story, it's actually more interesting than his eyes, I think. So his mother was French, and his favorite uncle, who's also his godfather, Claude, would uh, take him to see cowboy movies when he was a little kid. Uh, If anyone doesn't know, you know, around the 40s and the 50s, you know, cowboy movies and television shows were really, really popular. So he gave him a cowboy name, which was Smokey Joe. Oh. And he loved it so much that when he was a little kid, if anyone asked him his name, he'd say his name was Smokey Joe. Oh, that's a good name. So it just kind of became his name. And then when he was 12, he, he dropped the Joe. So his mother died when he was 10, and his sister had about 10 or 11 kids. So he really grew up with his nieces and nephews like they were siblings. So the Miracles uh, were a band that he formed in high school. He actually graduated high school when he was 16. Wow. A month later, auditioned for, I should say, a month later from graduation, auditioned for Jackie Wilson's manager, who told them they had no talent and they would never (laughs) make it. But in that audition was a man named Barry Gordy. Oh, hey, that guy. What's that song? And he said, oh, I wrote that song. Oh, do you have any more songs? And Smokey brought out a notebook with about 100 songs in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that Smokey says that that he feels that Barry Gordy really taught him how to really, you know, perfect songwriting, that he really didn't have it quite yet. You know, he had all Mm -hmm. these songs, but it just there was something that really wasn't there. And that Barry actually only liked the one song out of the hundred, but didn't tell him that he was bad, didn't tell him that he would never make it, but saw this this talent in him. And I, I think that's a great example of feedback. Right. This mm-hmm. one guy was like, oh, those are horrible. Whereas somehow Barry Gordy saw potential in this genius, but didn't tell him, you know what? These are all bad. I only like this one because that's not encouraging. Yeah. Well, and also if you get one brilliant song, that's more than most people do. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, what's interesting, which I didn't know, was that the, the songs that Smokey wrote um, made them money is how they formed Motown. Oh. Yeah. So the money that they got from those songs that that he helped him write, they sold, and then their first song with the Motown label, the Tamla label, was Shop Around. Oh. Yeah. I, I don't know why this got out of my consciousness, but technically they both started it. And then in Barry, Barry Gordy actually was writing a bit, and then they kind of separated. So together they started Motown from the sales of this song, and he says that's his proudest proudest moment of his life is creating Motown at that point, which is really beautiful. Um, So they sort of separated, right, where uh, Barry Gordy kind of became kind of running the business side of it and not writing songs. And then um, Smokey became kind of a talent scout, in-house producer, songwriter, obviously was singing as well, and eventually became the vice president of Motown Records until it was sold. Now, some of the songs that you may know from this amazing, prolific guy are You've Really Got a Hold on Me, I Second That Emotion, Tears of a Clown, Tracks of My Tears, as well as writing songs for Mary Wells, The Temptations, The Marvelettes, The Four Tops, and Marvin Gaye, who he was very close with and he really described as like his brother, which was really beautiful. Also songs that he wrote, not for himself, The Way You Do the Thing You Do, My Girl, My Guy, Get Ready, You Beat Me to the Punch, You Really Got a Hold on Me, Ain't That Peculiar, which is one of my absolute all-time favorites. The Beatles were highly influenced by Smokey Robinson. There's an article from 1968 where he talks about his theory of writing. He says, my theory of writing is to write a song that has a complete idea and tells a story in the time allotted for the record. It really has to be something that really means something, not just a bunch of words on music. Uh, he actually married one of the, the miracles, Claudette Rogers, in 1959. They've since separated and divorced. They had two kids, uh, one named Barry after Barry Gordy, and a son, and then a daughter named Tamla after the record label. He said that his favorite album of all time is actually Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. He feels that it's a prophecy. And he does not think he is a good singer. Yeah, they never do. 
He says, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Aretha Franklin, those are great singers. He says, I'm not in that category. I won't fool myself. This was what he said in 2018. Today, he lives in Pittsburgh, and he is in the wine business. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's still touring. In 2016, he received the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Music. Hmm as well as many Grammys, the Grammy Living Legend Award. He has an honorary doctorate from Howard University. He has the Kennedy Center Honor and the National Medal of Arts Award from the President of the United States. And obviously, he was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Like like you do when you're Smokey Robinson. There's so much to talk about Smokey, and that is obviously just a little uh, abridged version of his life. But there would be no Motown without Barry Gordy, and there would be no Motown without Smokey Robinson, yeah. and I think popular music in general. Mm-hmm. What a genius of a man. My God, it's 4,000. And honestly, that's estimated. Yeah. Well, especially because if, as like an up and coming, he just had 100 ready to go. Woof. We're not worthy. Let's get into the episode, which starts, uh, well, during the song. I was going to say after the song, mm. but it really starts during the song. Yep. Oh, we start with Murphy talking about Fidel Castro because there's a little picture of him behind her. I read there are too Uh, many Fidel Castros in the background because every screen is Fidel Castro. Yeah, she is surrounded. Oh, and uh, the lovely Carl is in charge of her close up and he's enjoying himself. He's in love with that close up of Murphy that he's doing. And he's like chewing gum kind of and like focusing like it's really good. Like you just know um, that he's in love. Like when you see people act looking at a phone when they get a text from like a like a loved one. Mm But there's an important phone call. And what's great is that uh, they have this sort of uh, shot that starts with Carl and Murphy and then kind of goes like a, like a circle around. Well, rotating around makes me think it's not a f- traditional pan because that's usually just a, a linear horizontal. Yeah, but I, can, I'm, I can't think of the term at the moment. But it does this great circle so that when, every, when the phone rings and then John answers it, and by the way, the phone doesn't ring, a red light goes on mm-hmm. so that it's not going on during the broadcast. And apparently it's a very important phone call that everybody needs. They all sort of circle, including Jim and Corky and Frank, who should be on camera or they're off camera, but should be on set. And so as the sort of pile of people become bigger and bigger around the phone, we circle and circle and circle it. It's really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And it's uh, the great thing about these openings is that I think Barnett has mentioned this, that there are certain things that he can do that you wouldn't be able to do with just a regular three camera. Mm-hmm. So the song is playing. And then just as we're getting near the end of the song for this segment, everyone runs back to their seats, Jim, Corky and Frank. And then we're out and Murphy ends the broadcast. He throws it to Jim. Jim says goodnight. His usual. This has been another edition of FYI. And we're out. And Murphy is not happy. Well, what I like is if you were watching them at the phone, the really smart way that Barnett and and co alongside the fact that it goes off with a red light you don't hear the ringing there's music playing the mm-hmm. the smart way that they show that this is happening during broadcast is right in the background you can see that murphy's still talking yes yes time. good point yeah so that's she's how you realize that like story. they must be out of frame because she's still giving a report we just can't hear it Murphy sarcastically thanks everyone for their undivided attention during her story. It's nice to know my colleagues and then the phone rings and everyone scrambles. There's And there's actually such a big laugh that it feels so sitcom-y. Mm-hmm. And she goes, appreciate my work. <laughs> Candace does a great sort of side eye, which is these, those takes that I love that she does. Like she kind of looks off to the side and it's like so particularly Murphy. So John answers the phone. Everyone's waited with, you know, bated breath. It's the union. John tells Carl. So obviously Carl is the union rep since he needs to talk to the union. Uh, Frank uh, asks, you know, if they're going to be a strike or not. It's such, this scene is a great way of giving us exposition in the moment in a very realistic mm-hmm. way because they're waiting for the phone call. So Frank's like, so, huh, are, are you on strike or not? And of course, Carl gets put on hold. So they have to wait. And then we get this sort of back and forth information for more backstory. I also love the fact that it, the way that it's set during the broadcast really ups the stake for the entire production. Yeah, there's an urgency. Like it really makes you realize how much and like they say later, that this affects everyone. The fact that this is happening and it's distracting even the quote-unquote cast mm-hmm. from broadcast shows just how much this is going to directly affect the broadcast that we see later. I, I also should mention, which I didn't mention, was that uh, we have all of our crew members, including new people who are going to be talking soon, who we've never met before, Dwayne. and our usual extras. Yep. <laughs> so a guy named Vito 
says that the union wants a strike and they have this big sort of back and forth until Jim calms everyone down. Hey now. He wanted to stay neutral, but he goes to the same health club as the execs and he, th- he thinks it looks good. But Frank is like, no, 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 no. He heard from the hookers at the hotel where they're negotiating. It looks bad. Huh. It's just a lot of like, you know, sort of one upping because Frank is like, well, I heard that it was a fistfight between the union and the hires up. So they blame the union. But then John is like, no, 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 it wasn't one of our guys. It was one of them. And it wasn't a fight. He had a nervous breakdown. And Corky's like, no, 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 no. She heard that it's food poisoning because someone left the Ramaki out all night. Mm. And then again, they're all sort of talking on top of each other. And there's all this noise. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, sort of to stop it, Corky just yells, who's touching me? Speaking of people thinking that they can touch women when they happen to be behind them, I would love to bring a little current relevancy to this conversation. Speaking of reporters. Yes, please. Um, So as many people who happen to be online in any capacity probably know, in Savannah, Georgia, a female reporter was covering a what I believe is an annual, you know, bridge run 5K style thing in Savannah when as they normally do, runners run by and they like wave at the camera and they do their thing. And one adult male decided that this was his opportunity to strike her rear and cop a feel at the same time. If you haven't watched this video, watch it. Mm -hmm. The look on her face says it all. Yeah. It's been very interesting to watch the two sides argue about whether or not this woman and her and her company, which thankfully is behind her, yeah. uh, not to make a pun, but who is thankfully supporting her, whether or not they're overreacting, which as a female who has um, been groped while reporting in previously and as just as a female, mm-hmm. um, it's not overreacting. It's and not. one of the things I love that she says in an interview, if you want to get something done, sometimes you have to be drastic about it. Yes. And that's why it's important that she's filed charges against this man. This man has been banned from all future races. There are many issues involved in this. I am, again, so thankful that her station is supporting her. Yes. I'm very glad that she spoke out. And I'm very glad that the uh, the community has banned him from races, that they are they appear to be taking this seriously. She was recently um, on several talk shows talking about it, explaining her position, also saying that she is uh, not able to speak about further charges or the police action because she's letting them handle it, which, again, is also a very yes. mature way to handle this. Also going up against people from the community and his own family saying, no, he's a good man. He's a family man. He teaches uh, Sunday school and all, you know, like all these kinds of things. And it doesn't matter what those things are. He did something that was wrong. Yes. And she says this great quote where she goes, it's not okay to help yourself to a woman's body just because you feel like it. It's not playful. He hurt me both physically and emotionally. Yeah. And that's it. It doesn't matter if you were a good person up to this point. You did something wrong. And I think something that frustrates me lately within, I I don't want to use this phrase, but it's a buzzword. So like cancel culture is the idea that holding someone accountable doesn't mean that we are not acknowledging that they have been a good person up to this point. And celebrating that somebody finally did something right is also not ignoring the fact that they did a bunch wrong prior. There has to be a way to acknowledge what has happened. And I think this person, he may be a really nice guy and everyone may like him. He also groped a woman in public. And the only reason that he is in trouble is because he did it in front of a camera. He should be held accountable. What I love is that other runners were clearly disgusted. So this is yeah. not a it's just I'm I'm very happy that this woman has taken the steps she has and also put herself in the crosshairs of public opinion. Same, because like you said, it, it doesn't matter that he's a good person. He he believed that this was a right thing for him to do. But mm-hmm. also, I think because the culture told him that it's a right thing to do. Exactly. I've been sharing this story on social media and talking about an incident that happened to me that still upsets me. And it happened a while ago. I was in a rehearsal and we were all sort of standing around um, to sign a, pa- sign a paper. It was an improv rehearsal. And so I bent over to sign the paper. And everyone is, of course, watching because we're all waiting our turn. And I stand up and I get a hard slap in the back. Because he had been trying to slap me in the ass, but I stood up too quickly and I screamed because it really hurt and I was not expecting to be slapped in the back. And I had an idea of who it was just because of the kind of person he was. But I mm-hmm. turned around and I, I, I asked who it was and I was very upset. And I looked at everyone and no one would admit and they all kind of, you know, wouldn't look at me or were acting like I was making a big deal out of nothing. And I looked at the women and... And the women walked away from me. Uh, 
I think that was what hurt the most was that no one yeah. would stand up for me, but particularly the women didn't go, no, this is this is wrong. This is the person who did it and made it seem like I was the person who did the bad thing. It's the gaslighting of it in that scenario, the gaslighting of this this woman. It's just the danger of boys will be boys yes. cannot be overstated because what happens is men will be men. And if you have one guy who's being told that it's okay to to grope a woman in public and not face any consequences, that just multiplies. It just gets exponentially worse. And it's people who help themselves to women's bodies in worse ways, in more sinister ways. It's people need to be held accountable. All like it's yes, I agree with you. I'm with you. I'm very sorry that happened. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm sorry that what happened to you happened to you. It, It just it, you know, you have a lot of people who are saying, Oh, well, it's not as bad as this, but they don't understand that it just creates a culture that attributed to this and I think far worse. And I am intrigued in this episode that our new friend Dwayne. Oh, yes. Which is, is great. The one standing behind her and like raises his hands. Yeah. Kind to of be like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. And I, I kind of I believe Dwayne. Yeah. I, I don't think at first I did. But the more we had of Dwayne in the episode, more I was like, oh, I don't think he did. Because my first impression of him uh, from a stereotyping a white, a large white male perspective. Yeah. Was that he was a gross lurker because he tends to lurk over everyone because of his stature. And that, that, that it was a moment of gaslighting. It's yeah. so interesting. But, you know, if I get to be stereotyped, so does Dwayne. However, I will say, after watching the episode, I don't think it was Dwayne. But no. the point is, is Dwayne should have called out whoever it was. In this one very light moment in a comedy that clearly at the time was not meant to be this, like, savage, anti-feminist no. moment of, of groping a woman. However, in current relevance, important to say, don't touch Corky. But we want to bring up, as we always do, context of today uh so murphy comes over because murphy you know murphy knows everything and she she just thinks they're all being ridiculous like they should know from years of negotiating experience that they can never believe rumors besides she knows for a fact see no we're not supposed to believe other rumors only rumors that murphy hears obviously she is the journalist yeah her source is very dependable and they will not have a strike and everyone grumbles of course you know murphy blah 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 they don't believe her but carl carl won't have it because he's under her spell and he believes that if murphy says there isn't going to be a strike there isn't going to be a strike and of course in sitcom style in that moment he's off hold and nope of course, strike. Murphy was wrong. And what's great is that Murphy does another side take. She, you know, she had this great confidence. You know, I know what I'm talking about. And then, of course, we always know when that happens that Murphy's always wrong because it's funny. Now, uh, apparently, uh, Koppel was her source because she goes, wait till I get my hands on Koppel. <laughs> oh, that was Koppel. Yeah. Now, uh, Jim lets everyone know that his head anchor, if there's anything that he can do, just let him know. And our guy, Dwayne, very deadpan. Oh, asks for a thousand dollars as he's hovering over Jim. Now I I've read this several different ways each time I watch it, but I think that Jim knows he's not kidding, but he's trying to pretend that he's kidding so he doesn't have to actually give him the money. You know, Jim has these beautiful moments of just bimbo that I'm not sure. I don't know. Because in the same way that like Miles at the end definitely knows that is definitely wary of Dwayne. I'm not sure Jim knows that he's joking. Yeah, I've really, each time I've watched it, I've seen it differently. But I think the more interesting choice is that he knows that he's not kidding. And so he's pretending. I don't know, but he's definitely, everyone is a little bit fearful of Dwayne. That is for sure. I'm just going to argue that I think the more interesting choice is that there is one person who is not fearful of Dwayne. And it's the one guy who might not be able to like fight against him, which is Jim. That's true. There's something about the like chin cuff that he does that is just like, dude, if you're actually aware to be maybe afraid of Dwayne, you would not. Now we're going to go into another scene in the bullpen, but apparently we found out, thank you, Corby, one of the writers from the show who uh, confirmed to us that they actually cut a secretary. It's not just cut from syndication. It was actually cut from the entire episode. A non-speaking secretary who's supposed to be like Norma Ray, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. And this is what it literally says in the script. It says, Secretary 27 is at her desk, drawing something on a piece of cardboard. She wears an open blouse over a halter top and resembles Sally Field and Norma Ray. And then it just, it goes into the scene. At the end of the scene, I'll talk about the the button to that joke. 
We're assuming it's probably the next day. I, no, I do think it's a couple days into the strike because oh, couple, Corky oh, starts right. it by saying she isn't sure if she could cross the picket line another you're for right, another you're day. Right. Another day, yeah. So it's probably a couple of days. Mm-hmm. She's wearing Corky this really striking pink blouse. Yeah. And what I like is that it's a very kind of saturated hot pink blouse, but then she also has this like calmer pink, completely pink mug. Yeah. She's a vision in pink. I love it. Murphy is wearing some of my favorite outfits, this sort of uh, Colleen. Yes. Oh, Colleen. Uh, a sort of uh, Catherine Hepburn thing going. She has a white turtleneck. The hair is pulled back in this Catherine Hepburn way. She has this sort of tan uh, suede sort of bomber jacket thing. She's She wears it a lot throughout the series. I just love it. These pants and belt. It's very casual, but also put together. Yeah, her... Uh- her red turtleneck sweater that comes up later in the townhouse. I definitely wore that outfit the other day. Oh, so I felt very yeah. represented by Murphy in this episode. All right. So we find ourselves in the bullpen. We uh, have figured out that it has been a couple days since the strike started uh, because Corky is commenting that she isn't sure if she could cross that picket line another day. Apparently it brings b- back a lot of bad memories uh, when she was in the pageants. Uh, she had to walk through protesters at the pageant calling it a meat market, to which Murphy just feigns shock. That someone oh, would I love, say that. I love she goes, oh, go on. Oh, go on. And she just smiles in like, that Murphy way. And Jim actually looks at her like, you know, oh, go on. No and way. believes her. It's true. It's true. Someone threw a pork chop at her. And then Faith does this amazing, just kind of a, a haunted read. That, Corky is reliving the moment. Oh, yes. She can still see that woman pulling it out of her purse, peeling off the freezer wrap, aiming, and then she like holds up her pink mug like it is the pork chop about to come at her. Oh, it's great. And Jim Jim is sure that that's not going to happen. The protesters are their friends. You know, the, the picket line is, is the crew. It's their friends. It's not going to happen. And of course, like good comedy, ding, the elevator arrives. And Frank walks himself off the elevator, holding his bomber jacket out in front of him, completely soaking wet. I do have to say, I was very happy to discover that it was water balloons because my first instinct was that they had thrown something else. I wasn't sure what it was, but I was very nervous about what he was wet from. Oh, no. There are so many things you can throw at a picket line. I forgot it was water balloons. I knew that something happened. Mm -hmm. And because I don't think it's that much of a spoiler, but in Maisel, there's a character gets hit by a tomato. Yep. And so I was like, oh, it's going to be like tomatoes or something. And I was like, oh, no, that's right. It's water balloons. Exactly. We'd just been talking about food. So I was like, what kind of watery food has he been doused in? I don't know. Anyway, someone asked what happens. It was water balloons. There must have been a hundred of them. He is also reliving the trauma. And Miles says, no, it was no more than seven or eight tops. And Frank says, how would you know? You took off at the speed of light and left me there. Miles swears he didn't take off. He just saw someone he knew. And Frank said, yeah, someone named help me, help me, help, help. It's a cashmere jacket. (laughs) Oh, Miles. That is when our good old friend Eugene or Gene Kinsella returns. He enters a bullpen and he he knows it's been a strain, but he wants everyone to know that the network is doing everything they possibly can. Now, as he's saying this, he is distracted to his left. At what I know was Frank's very soaked and disheveled appearance and this general kind of victim shivering that he's doing as if he's like in the middle of the winter and completely soaking wet. However, my first watch of this is that I thought he was actually distracted by Jim's very vibrant fish mug that he's holding. <laughs> It was just the angle of Gene's look at the. I was like, is he distracted by the. Mo- oh, no, it's Frank. It's Frank. Yeah. And Gene doesn't like Frank very much. He doesn't no. hold him in that high of respect. Not so I'm sure he's Frank just fan. like, what is going on? <laughs> what is this man, little man doing? So he says he, he, the network is doing everything they possibly can to bring the strike to a swift and equitable conclusion. To which Murphy, our hero, calls him on that, saying that that's interesting because she knows that the network walked out on the negotiations that the negotiations can't happen if they're not at the table. And Kinsella says a phrase that we hear later, which is that, well, they can't be the ones to come back to the table. It'd be taken as a sign of weakness. Murphy goes, oh, that she understands. And she offers to go get a ruler so they can measure it and settle it once and for all. Oh, can I can I read the actual oh, please line? Do. Because this has become quite infamous. I believe we have stickers that we made of this line. We sure did. If you donate money to the podcast, we will send you a sticker of this hero moment. I think I'm beginning to see the real issue here. Why don't you guys just pull down your pants? I'll get a ruler and we'll settle this once and for all. To thunderous applause, Mm -hmm. which I almost automatically did as well because it is exactly what's happening. Mm, It's a chef's kiss line. What I love is that uh, Kinsella looks positively miffed. (laughs) 
Because, you know, Murphy's his friend. And uh, Miles does this wonderful thing where he gets between them with his back to Kinsella and is holding Murphy's hand and patting it and making, like, come on eyes at her. It's like trying to hold a lion tiger or something. Uh You know, he's like, oh, come on, Murphy, and kind of pats her arms and then slowly makes it down to her hands and then takes the hands and holds it. Just like, please don't do this. Please, we don't want to say anything we're going to regret. Like just the padding of just like, please, please stop, please. And his eyes are just like, please, please, please stop. And Murphy announces to Jean that, you know, she has an informant coming on the show. It's a... the. It's the informant from a major defense contractor. She's been waiting for months for this story, and the, this strike is endangering it going through. Like, and you get you very much get the impression, and you find out in the next scene that she this is a very uh, scared whistleblower. This person is very jittery. It's been a lot to get them there. She doesn't want anything ruined in any way. Which, of course, the second that we f- we figure out those stakes for her story, mm-hmm. we know something's not going to go well. <laughs> No, it is not going to go well at all. And Kinsella assures Brownie, I forgot that he calls her Brownie. It's great. That they have the best non-union crew they can find, and they're supplementing it with office personnel who have been giving extensive emergency training. He says, I expect to see you all on the set tonight. Good. And remember, together, we can end this strike. I love that it ends that way. I literally oh. wrote, ha ha. Really? We're all working together, Gene? Sure, Gene. We're not working together, Gene. So Gene leaves, and then the actual script, we have kind of the button to the secretary. Oh, Murphy, do you think you could control your secretary? Which is what Gene says to Murphy. So we turn and see Secretary 27 is standing on top of her desk, of course, holding a cardboard sign over her head that reads Union. And Murphy just crosses to her and says, uh, when your arms get tired, I've got some typing. I love it. Which I just love. So we cut to the studio and uh, it is chaos. <laughs> it is complete chaos. Is the camera guy reading the directions? I think so. I know, again, as we were promised that the personnel is, um, they're going to have extensive emergency training. I believe that might be on the job. Yes. Emergency training. And also, <laughs> I love that that Jean mentioned that they were going to be using staff from the office because the mm-hmm. we recognize people. Mullet guy is there? Oh, yeah. I wrote, yay, mullet guy? Go, go guy. Get it. It's a good old college try. Now, Frank has to get out of the way of a ladder as he tries to figure out what's wrong with his toupee. It's on backwards, right? Is that what we're thinking? It's on backwards? Um. Y- Yes. What I found very interesting about, I'm very positive it's on backwards. What I find interesting is per all of our conversations about toupee and the conspiracy of toupee, Mm -hmm. they are making Frank wear the toupee. Yeah. And also something that I completely forgot to mention when uh, Corky won her award, not only does he not wear the toupee to the event, it's not Mm -hmm. in the picture that they show of him on the screen. Yeah. He's not wearing his hair. So everybody knows he doesn't wear hair. Yeah. And yet he wears it. I really like this thing is that he has to wear it for the network. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, listen, I just realized that Carl Reiner was known to not have hair and often would wear a toupee. But he's also an actor. So it makes a little different. I don't know. Yeah. Conspiracy continues. Uh, So he can't figure out what's quite wrong with the toupee. He keeps asking everybody. Um... I just wrote Jim enters exclamation point. I don't know why. Uh, Wonderfully. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I know. Okay. So Jim enters and, and he's just really excited about the show. You know, he really misses. I love how he says our crew. I know. Like he doesn't say the crew. He says our crew, which is really just shows how important everybody is to, to everyone on staff. Mm-hmm. It's not just in front Papa of the camera. Jim. Yeah. But he thinks it's very exciting to do a live show with an untested crew. I just like that Jim says it gets the old juices flowing. Oh, that's right. Oh, Jim. Yeah, you would like that line, wouldn't you? Yes. I almost said any time Jim talks about his juices, but that would have crossed into a, a little, very different a conversation. Crossing into, yeah. I love how Frank says that he hates the toupee and one day he's just going to show up without it. Right? Man, this really blows our conspiracies out of the water. It does, but also I didn't realize that it's actually building a arc with him in the in the way <laughs> for when he does actually get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually goes, oh yeah, that comes from somewhere. It's not just out of nowhere yeah. that he burns it. You're like, yeah, I love it. I get it. He insecurely asks Corky how it looks. And she says he looks like her third cousin, Russell, whose parents were brother and sister. That was one of the only lines I wrote down from this section, <laughs> partially because I was laughing so hard this entire segment that I wrote down very few things because I just could not it's, stop laughing. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And plus, Faith is just like squinting at him like, you look mm-hmm. like my third cousin, Russell. His parents were brother and sister. And sister. 
So Murphy comes in and she's dressed what I think is a lovely bright salmon jacket. And she yes, has great. Mr. X. She lets him know that the bustle around is perfectly normal. It's very smart of Murphy, like, to know that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we already can tell that he's nervous. He's wearing a trench coat, a hat. He's looking around. He's wearing glasses. He asks where the exit doors are. <laughs> and then she asks uh, Miles to explain the tech that they're using to disguise his face, I guess, to make him feel more comfortable. And the first part, you know, he describes, like, professional. And the second part, where they're going to make him sound like a chipmunk. He sounds like he's five years old. <laughs> Miles says that they have about 20 seconds to air, uh, which, of course, I went, thank you, 20. A little theater mm. theater joke for any theater people thank out there. Thank you, 20. Thank you, 20. Uh, and he's going to supervise from the booth, which is uh, critical to what's going to happen. But also, we've never been to the booth before. Mm-hmm. We're in the booth. I don't know this tech guy's name in the show, but uh, watching this now, it's such a critical having to write everything down level. It's only his fault that everything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. The rest of the crew in the booth actually kind of probably know what they're doing. This guy is is the missing link. Oh, buddy. Yeah. He can't figure out how the picture works, for one thing. <laughs> in a true, like, IT crowd moment. Oh, yes. Of, did you just try turning it off and back on again? <laughs> yeah. Um, ends up it wasn't even on, which is why it wasn't working. Mm. So, Jesse, did you recognize something from the start of the show within a show that might be familiar oh, to us? It's funny, they started speaking and I suddenly felt like I was supposed to be speaking myself. It's like a thing that I hear, it's Pavlovian. I suddenly want to have an opinion and relevant insight. It's the opening of our episode. It's the because the only time we really actually hear cue the theme, cue the graphics, and go. It's literally not what it says, even though I edit it a million times. What that's how Listeners, that is how niche and obscure and specific our referential opening is for you. Yeah. So before we start the episode, though, within the episode, Miles gives everyone a pep talk. Also, (laughs) woman of color in the booth. Yep. Get it, girl. Yeah. Um, There's also a female camera operator, but I hate to point out the women because they're doing a bad job. Um, I know. So uh, thank you for the diversity. But at least everyone's equally doing a bad job. Yes, that's right. That's equity. It's like when something bad happens, my, my family will go, are they Jewish? <laughs> Please mm. don't be a woman. Please don't be a woman. Um, anyway, uh, so <laughs> I'm Bloom B. So we have uh, cut graphics, cue theme, and the theme actually runs backwards, like a fast forward VCR. So already they've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles assures them that it's going to be fine. It's the joy of live television, to which, again, missing link guy says, this is live? Oh, buddy. Now, Jesse, did you write down the stories? I feel like that's always your thing. Oh, I didn't. I, again, uh, I was laughing so hard at what happens yeah. next that I really, I failed you in this segment. No, I'm that's sorry. okay. It's all right. Because I was like, oh, Jesse will know this. But I've done that. You were like, Lauren right. will do this line. And I'm like, I didn't Lauren write will do that the one down. It's fine. This was my turn. But I do remember that Corky's doing an interview with Tommy Toon. Yes, I yes. did. <laughs> I'm not oh, sure if they'll Corky. be in the same frame together, but. Yes. So then the camera starts to go really low and Jim tries to follow it with like his face until finally (laughs) they realize, I guess it looks like the camera operator fell asleep, perhaps, and has to bring the camera upright again after a lot of yelling. Then they're focusing on Frank when they should be focusing on Jim and then Murphy. So we catch Frank checking out the rug in the mirror. And then finally, we are on Murphy as she introduces her segment with Mr. X. And we get a a wide shot and all seems to be well until the black dot that's covering Mr. X's face with his chipmunk voice Uh starts to get bigger (laughs) and bigger. And then the dot starts spreading towards Murphy and they're all (laughs) blaming each other and they don't know what they're doing. And it's just like I wrote, it's really all his fault. It's really all the one guy's fault. This is the most simple and stupid joke. And I could not stop laughing. Like it changes shape. It becomes oblong. It covers their both of their face. It covers all of him. It's it is the blob, but it is. It's so stupidly funny. Like, I yeah. just whoever came up with this gag gets all of my high fives. Also, Grant Shaw is so great at physical comedy. So to throw <laughs> him in that booth oh and, and have him screaming, get off her, get off her. The dot is now on Murphy and Murphy sounds like a chipmunk. <laughs> and then, of course, moving the dot off of, of her 
actually does the opposite and now the dot is off him and no one knows this because no one is downstairs isn't doesn't seem to be a stage manager of any kind and then mm-hmm. miles grabs someone's uh headset and just starts yelling into the mic to murphy to hear but there's so much static and feedback because it's so loud she just like th- takes her earpiece and throws it out so now she has no idea what's happening at one point, Miles walks up to the television and starts slapping it to get Murphy's attention like she's going to hear him. He's like panicking. Oh, it is true desperation. Yes. I love when Miles panics. Mr. X is just whistleblowing left and right. Oh, left and right. He is launching into everything that could have gone wrong. He is spilling all the tea. It's amazing. The booth is bedlam. Mm-hmm. Finally, I think it's Frank, right? He moves the, the, the monitor. Yeah, like wheels the monitor. Frank wheels the monitor over to Murphy and she goes, whoa, and then tries to end the segment. Only Mr. X notices. He screams that he's going to be a dead man. Finally, the, the incompetent man says that he's fixed it and he pushes a button and it just makes Murphy turn into a chipmunk. But you see her face and she goes back to you, Jim. <laughs> it's so good. It is so good. But the best part, it's like, we can't even explain it. Like, I'll have to put a clip no. on social media for you guys yeah. to see it. But then Miles does his best Titanic impression before Titanic <laughs> came out and just like puts his hand on the screen and like slowly like fades. And his whole body is actually like out of frame anyway. It's yeah. so He's hilarious. He's just sinking down. It's so good. Yeah. And then we cut to. So understandably, the crew needs a drink and we find ourselves at good old Phil's finally. Um, apparently, the crew is also a badass barbershop group. Yes, apparently. <laughs> and I can't remember the exact episode, guys, so I'm sure someone listening remembers. But in the later seasons, I'm pretty sure that he comes back again and does sort of a barbershop quartet quite thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking to see if he actually, you know, did that in real life. And I can't find it, but I feel like I read that somewhere once. But particularly in his obituary, it said that he was a visual artist. He played harmonica rhythm guitar in a number of bands so he was very musical do you know what song they're singing yes they are i'm yes i do (laughs) yes they are (laughs) they are they are singing they are singing get a job which is a song originally by the silhouettes released in november 1957 see i knew you'd know that's why i I literally just wrote what are they singing lauren Um, (laughs) like i was in a hurry i'm in rehearsal um what i love is that i wrote down they look like the t-birds from the movie of or the burger shop boys from the stage production of greece i'm going to call them that from now on um, they have white FYI t-shirts with, that are crossed out in uh, red circles with the with the cross through them. I'm worried that they spent money on these shirts when they're not making any money and they oh, should yeah. probably use it for, I don't know, some kid's education, bonded teeth. I could also believe that they just took their existing shirt and put red gaff tape on, like electrical tape. That's true. And if I may say, there is a woman sitting at the table mm-hmm. because the thing about this strike episode that maybe a reason why maybe I didn't enjoy it as much as a kid. It is filled to the brim with testosterone. And there are not a lot of female characters on the crew or in the negotiation team. But there is a woman sitting at the table. And I want to think that she's part of the crew because she's wearing leather gloves without fingers. And I know that's not really like anything specific. I mean, it's not a biker bar. So I'm going to go with, yeah, I think she's maybe like a grip or something. Yeah, because all of them are a little more casually dressed than usually the patrons at yeah. Phil's are. So I was like, oh, a woman, a woman. Someone on the crew is a woman. Yay. So they finish this wonderful song as the gang is entering. Phil comes around the bar to greet the gang. And they assume that he's very into the amount of patronage in his mm-hmm. bar, as appears to be, because it appears the entire crew is now living at Phil's. Phil wants them gone. They've been there twice as long and spending half as much as normal. And he says, if it mm-hmm. keeps going, he'll have to cancel Phyllis's personal fitness trainer just when she was beginning to look good in those Toreador pants again. And then Miles says, a usual for his team and a round for the strikers. And Phil looks at me and goes, you know, burgers go really well with drinks. And Miles takes the bait and says, Bur- burgers for everyone. And Phil says, no dessert for them? And to which Miles goes, Phil, can I talk to you? And Phil stops and says, not now, Miles. I got $300 worth of burgers to make. Poor Miles. He wanted to do the good thing and Phil just owned him. And Jim points out that, yeah, the, d- the damn strike hurts everyone. And Frank says, you know, we could refuse to cross the line. That'll put him in put him in action. 
And Miles says, yeah, legal action. You all have contracts that you have to be there, which is something we don't often talk about when it comes to strike conversations is that, yeah, everyone's being Mm. pressured from all the sides. And so they're all sitting down at the hero table and Corky comes up with, why don't we all just give some of our salary to the crew so that they get the raise they want. And (laughs) they just pan to the gang, the horror on their faces (laughs) at the idea of taking pay cuts to stop the strike. And at that moment, the crew comes over to thank the table for their burgers and to apologize for Frank about the water balloons. And Frank says it's fine. And then they all, you suddenly realize, have all surrounded behind Miles's chair and they say they weren't aiming for Frank and look at Miles <laughs> and that's when he realizes looks up to the looming face of Dwayne and says do you like ice cream Dwayne what's interesting in this moment is that they all start venting about complaints about the network that are the same complaints that Kinsella and the network have about them as negotiators that mm-hmm. they are impossible that they won't come back to the table where have we heard this before And Murphy stands up and points out, well, that someone has to make the first move. Someone has to come back to the table first. Yeah, John says, we can't move first. It'll be taken as a sign of weakness. Cough, cough. Where did we hear that before? Murphy decides she's going to be the one to make peace. If they're not going to come to the table, she'll do it. And that she's going to have everyone over to her place and make them talk to each other. Frank stands up and says he's not really sure that someone who tried to run down her mechanic over a billing dispute is the right one for the job. <laughs> I literally cackled out loud when Frank <laughs> It's said so that. true. I'm like, really? You're the one? <laughs> it is. Candace does this little sing song like, all right, you'll see. And starts to walk over to Carl. Let's remember, Carl is our union rep. And proceeds to offer that he come over to her place. But Carl, Carl's not quite hearing the uh, the platonic offer that's being given to him. I I knew that was a mistake as soon oh, as yeah. he said it. Carl, sweet Carl, stands so quickly, mm. removes his hat from his head like a true gentleman and holds it to his heart and says, sweet Lord, my prayers have been answered. He's so earnest. She she assures him it's not like that. She just wants to talk about the strike. I mean, there'll be cake, coffee, a little party. What's the harm? And Carl does this wonderful, dramatic melodrama where he kind of touches her upper arm and moves her upstage and says, please don't make me do this, Murphy. Please don't make me choose between my union and you. And she says she would never do that. But she will wear those black pumps that he likes so much. And Carl clutches his hat in front of him and says, God forgive me, I'm putty in your hands. I love the fact that a simple, sensible shoe turns Carl on. Carl appreciates a good woman, like a true woman. I was like a pump? Oh, yeah. Good pair of black pumps. That'll do a lot for a woman. Yeah. Good good for oh, Carl. Yeah. Uh, Carl has great taste. You know, that's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need a, a no. spiked heel. That's what I love. I love that Carl's in love with Murphy, not Corky. Not someone who's like young and hip and fashionable. He's about like an empowered, yeah. assured, adult, mature woman. Like a woman. I love it. Not a girl. He wants a woman. No, I think, yeah, he definitely wants her yes. to dominate him. That's for sure. I'm just imagining Carl's dating profile on Tinder, and it is so sweet. Aw. Uh, so we cut to the townhouse. And as previously mentioned, Murphy is dressed in a large red sweater. It is long. It is fabulous. It looks comfy. It's stunning. It's a turtleneck. It can be worn with just leggings because it's so long. It's, I would say, to mid-thigh. Very in. Yeah, Very it's, in a, right it's a bright red uh, cable knit. Um, I definitely own one that I purchased to do a cosplay of Red from Fraggle Rock. (gasps) Of course you did. You must have looked so cute. Oh, my God. So what really caught my attention is that Murphy has a full on classic tea service, not maybe matching, but like an actual tea service, not just like tea for everyone. She fancy. It's a tea service. Mm -hmm. She's totally fancy. Alden comes from the den, uh, which he calls the library. (laughs) I don't think there's two rooms back there, but I, I forgive He's him trying. for that. Avery very clearly called it the mm-hmm. den last time, but, but you know, interchangeable words. Uh, he's letting her know that he's sanded the baseboards and it's decision time. She needs to pick a color and she needs to go either go with Navajo white or eggshell, which is a very classic mm-hmm. joke. White or white. Murphy does not have time for this. You know, people are about to arrive. She doesn't think they look any different. So she just tells him to pick a color. Eldon needs her to pick. Otherwise, she's not going to like it, you know, months from now. And every time she looks at it, she'll only remember her <laughs> apathy, which I love. He is savage when he wants to be. He really is. Fine, you know, she picks eggshell, but Eldon thinks that she really wants to go with the Navajo. I have a question. Is this is this a little like racist little to call it Navajo, right? Right, right. Well, it is because I feel so uncomfortable saying it. Um, I'm going to go with uh, 
it was not a person of native descent who came up with that color choice. I'm going to guess, yes. That that name? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say that it's based on some stereotype of a white person's absorption of their culture okay. or their art. And I'm not in any way calling anyone on the show no. racist because it's it's a color. It's legitimately like the colors that these things were named at the time. I would not have thought about it back then either. I'm like, oh, that's just the color. But saying it now. I'm not blaming the writers. I'm, I'm blaming the culture at the time. Yes. No. And I yeah. knew you were. I just realized I want to be sure that everyone knows that's yeah. not what I'm saying. Um, but interesting little things I like think, this, yeah. right? That I'm like, I don't feel comfortable saying this. All right. So so pretty much his Eldon thinks that she's made the wrong choice. So really, he did not want her to choose. He, he knew what he wanted her to, mm-hmm. to take. And so finally, she's like, fine, fine, fine. Go with the color that you want. Because the doorbell rings and it is he's Carl so, looking quite dapper. He's so gussied up with that lovely scarf. He is. He's got a, a scarf and a newsboy hat. Oh, very, very in right now. I get him. And uh, a nice little tweed jacket. He's very special. He's looking really good. He has brought her a gift. Oh, but first of all, he's not alone. John has come because John said that they don't trust Carl with her alone. This is smart. Is very, very smart. So they had to bring a neutral uh, person from, you know, their side there. Mm -hmm. Again, Carl has brought her a gift. It is a rose quartz, which uh, he believes or is told stimulates the love impulse. I'm just going to step in and say that rose quartz is actually connected in many cultures to love of all kinds. Oh, it is. Really? Um, If you want to give yourself a symbol of self-love when you particularly need a bit more. Um, you can buy at a mm-hmm. bunch of different stores. You can just get a really affordable ring made of rose quartz. And um, it's mm-hmm. recommended that you hold it uh, while watching something that makes you feel out of love or thinking about how much you love yourself. And you wear that as a symbol of self-love. You can wear a necklace or anything like that. But oh. rose quartz is a way to uh, to charge and embody different forms of love. Do you know what I just flashed to that I had forgotten about? I used to have a rose quartz necklace mm-hmm. in middle school when I would watch mm-hmm. Murphy Brown. It was those were very in in the nineties. Oh, yeah. It was a silver chain. And was it like the little like almost like spike version of a rose quartz, and it's hung in a little like silver thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have one of those, and I would yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I still oh my god, this is all flashing back. I remember it fell off my necklace and it fell on the ground and it broke into. Pieces. You know what that is um, considered within people who work with crystals. Um, I have friends yeah. who know far more about crystal work than I do. So this is just one mm-hmm. one small, you know, aside and not necessarily the only way to interpret that. But I often would wear uh, stone rings like hematite for uh, different things, jade for different things, rose quartz for different things. And that when it eventually breaks, it means that um, you no longer need it. Ooh, that's dark. just based on my experience in middle school. That's really mm-hmm. eerie. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, thank you, Jesse. Okay. So um, next, of course, at the door is Jean. It's really implied that uh, Jean is only there because Murphy threatened to have the flu and not be in next week's show. I'm feeling much better, Jean. (laughs) She's good. So they all go into the living room. Um, Unfortunately, John and Jean both want to sit in one of the black chairs, the same black chair. And there's a bit of a fight over it. Murphy, of course, is, you know, hey, look over there. Another black chair that looks exactly the same. Hmm. I don't want one of you take that chair. They won't budge. Finally, Murphy says, well, what, Jean, you sit in this chair and, and John, you, you can go over and sit in the other seat. She'll sit on the couch, which, of course, she realizes when she sits down means that she's sitting on a very small, tight couch with Carl. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. And I missed the best part. Murphy made a cake. That's where she sent Eldon. Oh, did Murphy make a cake? Whew. So out comes the cake that is extremely lopsided. Mm-hmm. Iced, but not the whole thing. Is if she iced it and then put it in inside the the oven and it melts that? I don't know. Maybe she ran out of icing. Considering all of the um, baking shows that I watch that make me an authority on baking, yes, that there was a um, an imbalance in in ingredients that made it uh, collapse mm-hmm. in such a way. Uh, Murphy tries to get them to talk. She brings up the idea that you know she was um, born in the spring. May 1948, which is the first time we hear when Murphy was born. Mm-hmm. That, of course, is when Diane English was born. And and through this whole conversation and the, and the way that Murphy is trying to get them to talk, um, I decided that Murphy would be a really bad teacher. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't think that she would be good at um, teaching the youth of America and getting them to converse with each other. Uh, then she tries to get them to bond over their kids. You know, John has two kids. They're very close in age to Jean's kids. <laughs> she goes, children, God bless him. 
And I wrote down, Murphy is so bad at fake acting. Oh, God. She's so bad. <laughs> oh, this is the great thing. is She asks Eldon to serve the cake. Eldon says that he brought out the cake, but she doesn't pay him to serve it. His name isn't Babette. Mm -hmm. So Murphy tries to offer the cake. No one wants the cake. She's really trying here, but none of her tactics are working. So she offers the cake to Carl, who goes, Murphy, I may be in love, but I'm not insane. <laughs> Which is like the first lucid thing that Carl has ever said around Murphy. Carl's self-aware. I really, I, Carl's really, I think, probably one of my favorite secondary characters. I just, I heart him so much. He's so complex. Yeah. And Mur Murphy has had it. You know, what I love what she says is that they are playing with people's lives. Yes. Because they, they are, They're not just the lives of the people who are in the union, but their families and their kids. And she just, she's, when Murphy has it, you know, she has had it, that she is going to lock that door and no one is going to get out until every last crumb of that cake is gone. Because she swept bullets over that thing. No mix, no microwave. I separated eggs. I pre-sorted. We're talking scratch, baby. So grab a pencil and grab a fork. We're not leaving until I'm ready to let you out. Have I made myself clear? And they go right into the cake. Oh, do they? So we find ourselves at a newly restored FYI set. Everything seems a little brighter, a little more orderly. We're in the middle of broadcast. And we are finding out from Frank and Murphy's uh, dialogue on broadcast that it sounds like the whistleblower story is turning out quite positively, which my current 2019 person wrote in my notes. wonder what that feels like. And anyway, political comment aside, it appears that Mr. X has landed on his feet. Since last week, all three networks have entered a bidding war to turn his story into a TV movie. And by the way, please remind me, Lauren, because I feel like you know this. What mm -hmm. are the three networks they're speaking of? Uh, yes. Wow. So all three networks at that time would be CBS, ABC, and NBC. Okay, that's what I thought. But I didn't want to write that and then sound like a dumb child. So Jim turns to Murphy and says he hopes that Jill Eikenberry will play her in the TV movie, to which Murphy just makes us face. <laughs> and we just want to say for the people that that is a compliment. Yes, Jill it is. Jill Eikenberry is a beautiful woman. And would be a perfect Murphy. She's got the hair. Truly, truly. Especially at that time, had the hair, had the look, totally could have played Murphy Brown. I'm very intrigued by Murphy's face at being referred to as Jill Eikenberry. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know who Jill Eikenberry is or was, um, she was a very famous television actress in the 80s and early 90s from L.A. Law. I also knew her from uh, Tracy Takes On on HBO. Oh, that, that's right. She did do mm -hmm. that. But that would have been more like, what, late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, that's yeah. probably why I know her a little bit better from that. But yeah, L.A. Law was the big thing. And she was known for her, uh, specifically her uh, coupledom with Michael Tucker. Yeah, so definitely look her up and you'll go, yeah, of course, she'd be a great Murphy. Like, like oh, of course. And yeah. thus, Murphy, I, I just, I think we talked about this. We don't think that Murphy wants to be um, considered comparable to anyone. Yeah, pretty much, no. <laughs> Essentially. So they, they wrap the show and we hear a great congrats, a uh, congrats to everyone. Show number one of a new three-year contract to which uh, Frank announces that he wants hazard pay for three more years of Vito. <laughs> and Vito threatens to zoom in on that weasel on his head. And everyone's circling around the table where they had originally um, gotten the call in the very first episode in front of the, the broadcast desk. Uh, Miles is kind of in the middle of everything and uh, does kind of his version of the thing that Frank does earlier to Dwayne and tries to kind of make a buddy joke to everyone, but particularly to Dwayne. He just wants to make sure there are no hard feelings, right, Dwayne? And punches him in the shoulder, to which Dwayne does not shift. And then does this really interesting, like, sweatshirt pinch. <laughs> he, like, playfully pinches his sweatshirt. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's Grandshaw genius, but it is so just like, dude, stop. You got to stop. Uh, Jim comes around and announces that he wants to go to Phil to toast the mediator that they brought in to help mediate the two sides of network and those striking. <laughs> Murphy's response is, oh, sure, yeah, this guy comes in for one day, and apparently he's getting all the credit. They know, they know, she did so much. <laughs> and then Dwayne does this great thing when he goes, you treating Miles? And Miles goes, you betcha. <laughs> and Dwayne hooks him around the neck with his arm that is truly the size of his head. Yes. And just walks him out. So Murphy's on her way out, and she's with John, right? So she's on her way out. They're about to leave. They're the last two in the space and all the lights go out. And Murphy turns. She's like, do you mind? We haven't even left yet. And John goes, uh, electricians. They said if we got a better deal, they're walking out. And Murphy turns and loudly in the dim light says, well, she guesses she better go home and start making another cake. And magically the lights come back on to Murphy's classic. Ha! And she walks out. Yeah, finally, um, Murphy baking. 
has a positive effect on people. <laughs> Who knew? Something more than nausea or food poisoning. We knew. It just, it needed its, uh, its status as nuclear weaponry in negotiation. <laughs> yes. And that's the episode. We, we end on a positive note for Murphy's Baking. <laughs> Yay, which is all really what it's all about. The true mediator. That's it, right? So thank you for joining us for our strike episode, which I think is an interesting subject because, of course, a lot of Murphy Brown is Murphy Brown because of the writer's strike mm-hmm. in 1988, as we've talked about in our first season of the show. Yeah, I, this is kind of a new surprise favorite episode for me. So I'm really, I'm really glad we got to talk about it. I'm glad we got to see the interesting uh, relevancies that are still in play in an episode that I truly, I think I'd forgotten happened. Yeah, and apparently Tyler Bowie as Dave does return. And also, Vito, the camera operator, is actually a real camera operator. And he's currently still working on the Connors. That's so fun. I mean, go Vito. And you know, when we had Barnett on, he spoke about that he liked to use Mm -hmm. real camera operators on the FYI set. So that makes total sense. You just see the difference. Exactly. So please uh, let us know what you thought about this episode. Uh, Did this surprise you as much as it did us? And you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Murphy Brown Pod. Our website is murphybrownpod.com. And our email is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. And if you want to give us a New Year's gift to help us continue with the podcast into 2020, any way to donate is on our website at murphybrownpod.com slash donate. We cannot do this without the amazing patrons that we already have. Thank you so much, guys. We love you so much. Agreed. We This holiday yes. season, we are very thankful for all of you. Um, and for this lovely little community that we have going. And uh, remember that if you join the Patreon, you can get a sticker from this very episode. And we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast.